Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Abib, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hivites, the Amorites, the Hivites, Hittites, Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now we read on in verse 11. These are all kind of connected. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you that you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as a frontlet between your eyes. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So here in these first 16 verses, we get the record of the consecration of the firstborn, that whatever opens the womb is the Lord's. We get the law of the firstborn, and we get the details of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, of course, is Passover. They're, they're one and the same. They go together. And so in an overview of this, we see that God is saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. What a contrast. Egypt, two generations before, killed all those firstborn males some 80 years before this and cast them in the Nile River, which is one of their gods. And now, two generations later, Israel is coming out of Egypt, and God has judged Egypt for what they did to Israel, casting their firstborns into the Red Sea, excuse me, into the Red Sea, yes, and he had turned the Red Sea to blood, and then the firstborn died. It was the first plague and the tenth plague that happened to them. And it's such a contrast, if you really think about it, because God is blessing them in this consecration of the firstborn. I mean, we're told in the Bible that we're all under wrath. We're told in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God has been revealed against all humanity because we're born in sin. And we have the sin nature from Adam. We're rebels. We're transgressors. We're born with a sinful nature. We don't seek after the Lord. We get older, we rebel, and we become grown-up sinners that rebel against God. And without the Lord intervening by the conviction of the Holy Spirit to draw us to Christ, we would just rebel more and more. And as the Bible says throughout the New Testament, we were, before coming to Christ, children of wrath. That's how we were. But Christ has redeemed us through his, 
death, burial, and resurrection, as we saw last week when we looked at the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, that we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. So we've passed from death to life. And again, these are typologies. We're told in Corinthians, these are things written for our admonition that we would grow and learn from them. So as we think about this consecration of the firstborn and all that opens the womb, the Lord gets the first fruits. I mean, all that we have is from the Lord, right? I mean, we could simply explain that right away that, well, whatever we have is from the Lord and we breathe our last, it all gets left behind. So whatever we have that's good in our life is from the Lord because God is good. David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is light, and him is no darkness at all. So every good blessing, every good blessing that comes down comes from the Father of lights with whom there's no shadow of turning. And if you think about this, it's not so much that God is taking, if you will, because God's a giver. You know, God's love the world. He gave his son. People take, but God gives. So look what God did here. Instead of judging Israel, which they deserve the judgment just as much as Egypt because they're sinners too, he passed over them with the angel of death because of the blood over the doorpost. So he passed over them and showed them mercy. And now he's entering into a covenant with them, and he is setting aside the firstborn of everything to be his. He's consecrating it. And isn't it nice to know that he wants to consecrate what's the first fruit of everything of our lives? Isn't it a wonderful thing that instead of it being struck down under the wrath of God, which is what we deserve, that God blesses us and consecrates? Like how special is it to think that our firstborn children, firstborn son, the perpetuation of our name and our legacy is consecrated to the Lord. Like, think how sad it would be if the Lord didn't care about you and wasn't interested in your life. Think how sad it would be if he wasn't the one who blesses you. Think how empty life would be if he wasn't the source of your daily bread and your joy and your abundant life, all those things that Jesus said. If we didn't, the happiness that comes from trusting the Lord. Just think if we had none of that, how sad and empty and fruitless and futile our life would be. But when you look here, he consecrates the firstborn. So special. The firstborn is consecrated to the Lord. It means it's special, it's set apart, and that's awesome. So praise the Lord that he wants to consecrate our first fruits, and he's interested in our first fruits. It's awesome. Now, he also said that he'd bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. So the promised land, that's a great description of where God's taken them, is the land flowing with milk and honey. It's a place where he's going to bless them. We'll come back to that later on in topical study. And then when they get there, they're going to be set apart, and they're going to, what their hands touch is the, is the Lord, what their eyes see is the Lord, what their mouth speaks is the law of the Lord on their mouths. And so they're, when they're brought to where God's taking them, it's a, it's a place of blessing and where they're going to grow in the Lord. And then again, we're reaffirmed that whatever opens the Lord's, opens the womb, is the Lord's. And again, it's a total contrast to Pharaoh, who was stubborn, and the Lord killed all the firstborn. But instead, we get to give our firstborn to the Lord and redeem them, and they're set apart to the Lord. It's a privilege to be set apart to the Lord. We need to understand that. It is a privilege to be set apart to the Lord. And it's a privilege that our descendants, the first fruits, are set aside to the Lord. Now, we read on here in verse 17. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. 
And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, as we go forward in the book of Exodus and the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, we will see that God does lead them with the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. He's leading them. We know that the angel of the Lord goes before them and behind them, and he's leading them. The fire and the cloud was a clear indication of get up and go, stay put, and whatnot in this covenant relationship as a nation with God under these circumstances. And for us in the New Testament, it's the Holy Spirit that does that. We're told by Jesus the Holy Spirit will guide us and lead us in all truths. He'll give us discernment. He'll give us wisdom. He'll lead our steps. And when we're told to let the peace of God rule in our hearts, there in Colossians chapter 3, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us peace. And we're told by being you know, prayer and supplication that our request be known to God, and then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. We're told that when we're born again, when we receive Christ, we're born again of the Holy Spirit, and he dwells in us. So just as the Holy Spirit dwelt in the holiest of holies in the temple and the tabernacle before the temple in the Old Testament under this covenant, he literally comes and indwells us. He's in us. We're told that our body is a temple of God. We're spirit, mind, and body, and our spirit's made alive when we receive Christ, and we're born again, and the Holy Spirit's in us. And he guides us like the pillar of fire by night and like the cloud by day. He's going to lead us. And so we're told in the Proverbs to trust the Lord with all of our heart, lean not on our understanding, but acknowledge him in all of our ways, and he will direct our paths. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit will do. And we're told in the book of James that if we lack wisdom, let us ask of God and ask in faith, and expect to receive because we're promised to receive and he'll, he'll guide us and lead us and he'll make our way clear. So it's comforting because you think, wouldn't it be nice, particularly in this time of COVID-19 and all the stuff that's going on, wouldn't it be nice if we woke up and there's the cloud out front in the daytime and there's a fire at night? Hey, there it is. It'd be nice. We'd feel a little more secure. Like we, We'd be like, yeah, well, the Lord's with us. Like, look, there's the fire. There's the cloud. Yeah, oh, the cloud's moving. Okay, we can go to the grocery store. Oh, the fire's moving. We can go buy gasoline and at the gas station and Wear our mask or whatever. I mean, who knows? But it'd be nice if it was that obvious for us. But we're meant to live by faith. And think about this. They had the fire and the cloud, and no one over 20 except Caleb and Joshua went in the promised land. So even having those things didn't guarantee that they're going to serve the Lord. But we're told that we walk by faith, and we live by faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the way our faith works is that we acknowledge the Lord in all things and we invite him to guide and lead our steps and he will. He will guide us. And so even as the fire led them by night and the cloud by day, so the Holy Spirit leads the individual believer in the new and everlasting covenant in this time of the church. And he'll lead you personally. He'll lead a church collectively. I mean, you look at the book of Acts there in chapter 13, Saul and Barnabas, they're all praying, ministering to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit says, set aside Saul and Barnabas for the work I've called them to. And then God sent them out. It's the same way. So for us, it's more of a privilege in the new and everlasting covenant to really hear the voice of the Lord and the Holy Spirit to speak to us and say, yeah, go. And we say this quite often, that is no is louder than yes, but his yes is there too. And he knows how to speak yes to us, but it's always steps of faith. And we read on. 
So he was taking them the long way because they weren't ready for war and there's things to learn in the wilderness and that's just the way it is. Sometimes you want the quick and easy route, but God's got a longer route because it's the better way to prepare us for what lies ahead. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn in camp before Paul-Hiharoth between Migdal, the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside Paharoth by Baal Ziphon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so they were afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness." And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he has accomplished for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you. You shall hold your peace. And so, in the first part of the wilderness, parting of the Red Sea, this wilderness journey, actually not quite in the wilderness, but in this exodus from Egypt moving toward the wilderness, this first event is such a grand event, the parting of the Red Sea. Now notice here, they are completely boxed in. They were exactly where God wanted them to be, and they are completely boxed in. Migdal, Baal-Zephon, Paul-Hiharoth, and the Red Sea. And God led them there. Now, why would God lead someone to be boxed in? Well, because sometimes we need to be boxed in. Like, being boxed in by the Lord is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. If God boxes you in then sit in the box he's put you in and think about what he's doing, what he wants to teach you in that situation and look to him for what he's going to do to bring you through that situation. We often think when it seems like there's no way that somehow God's abandoned us, we're boxed in, how are we going to get out of this situation? There's no solution for a financial problem, a relationship challenge, a legal problem, and we just feel so boxed in. In fact, you know, a lot of times when people take their life, suicide is quite often in many cases because people feel boxed in and they don't see a way out. And the only way out, the one thing they can control is to take their life. And that's their way out, which is really, really sad. And it is what it is. But it's not uncommon for all humanity and anyone in humanity to feel boxed in, like there's no escape. Am I ever going to get out of this poverty? Am I ever going to get out of this abusive relationship? Am I ever going to get out of this oppressive country under this totalitarian regime or whatever? And we can feel boxed in. But in the end, faith supersedes being boxed in. And if we belong to the Lord, we can know that wherever we're boxed in, he's with us. When Paul was in prison, he was boxed in. And the Lord was with him. When Elijah was in the wilderness, he was boxed in at the brook Cherith. And the Lord was with him, provided for him. Being boxed in from the Lord is not a bad thing. And when we're boxed in, almost like a stay-at-home right now, like we're at, it's a chance to draw near to the Lord 
and look to the Lord. And by the way, when you're boxed in, you're out of solutions. And since faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen, it means you don't know it, you don't understand it, you can't control it, and you can't manipulate it. You have no resolution. They're completely boxed in. I mean, the Lord just, they were just under the blood, and they're under the blood, and they're delivered. And they're boxed in. There's our enemies. There's a Red Sea. It's going to take a miracle. And if your solution and deliverance is a miracle, really good. That's awesome. That's, that's part of God's plan is to do something really special to show himself strong on behalf to you. That's part of his plan is to show himself strong on your behalf. Now, in this situation, it says there in verse 10, they were very afraid and the children cried out to the Lord. Isn't that a good thing to do in general, but particularly when you're boxed in? Yeah, I mean, cry out to the Lord. He'll box you in so you cry out to the Lord. He'll allow events to show you that you can't do it and you don't have the solution, and so you cry out to him so he can show himself strong on your behalf. That's what he wants to do. That's exactly what he wants to do. So if you're boxed in, and some of us feel boxed in, what are we going to do? Is the business still going to be functioning when, when we're allowed to go back to work? Like, how are we going to pay our bills? I mean, how many stimulus checks can we get before we're in big trouble? I mean... We don't know. Like right now, I feel like the whole planet's boxed in. We're we're literally boxed in. Like who even knows? But through personal faith in Jesus Christ, we can know. Like we just cry out to the Lord for deliverance, and he's going to make a way. In fact, Moses said there in verse 13, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of your God. That's what we want to do when we're boxed in. Hear the voice of the Lord. Hear the voice of Moses. Hear the voice of the scriptures. Stand still and see the salvation of our God. So when you're boxed in, stand still and see the salvation of God of our God. Because if he's boxed us in, he's the one that knows the way to get us out. And he wants to teach us things while we're boxed in, and he's going to teach us things in our deliverance. Love verse 14. Moses said, the Lord will fight for you. You shall hold your peace. And isn't that what being boxed in is? You can't fight anymore. The Lord will fight for you. You shall hold your peace. Be still and hold your peace. God's got a way. Verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea, and I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his army, his chariots, his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and I shall gain honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud of darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that one did not come near the other all that night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused all the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea in the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued after them, and into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen." So God made a way. God made a way for them, a supernatural way. Now, we know that this is a miracle, and this defies our laws as we understand them in time, space, and matter, just like Peter walking on water, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego in the fire, not being burned. There are numerous miracles, obviously, where the the fourth or eternal dimension supersedes time, space, and matter in our three-dimensional world, and that's exactly what happened here. God blew that wind, and the waters stood up supernaturally. They just stood up. They coagulated, and they were just standing there. And the scripture makes that very clear. 
we need to know it's like the feeding of the 5,000. Something miraculous happened here, and God performed a miracle, just like how he creates everything out of nothing, the origin of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, too, it's just one of those miracles where his dimension comes over it, and he does things that defy our nature as we understand it in our world. And he's God. And isn't it beautiful when he does stuff like that? How sweet it is to walk with the Lord and see supernatural deliverance when he does just really cool, miraculous things. In reading the book on Brother Andrew, the God smuggler, when he smuggled all those Bibles into Eastern Europe and Russia and those places during the time of the communists, the USSR, the Soviets, were in power, the atheist, godless men that they were, Christ-rejecting, antichrist. Brother Andrew was one of those many people that would try and minister the body of Christ in Romania, Moldavia, Belarus, and all those places. And there's a famous story in God's Smuggler where he has a, a vehicle full of Bibles. The entire vehicle is full of Bibles. And he gets pulled over to check stop. And he's like, and he's hung out to dry. Like, this is it. He's caught with all these Bibles that are completely, radically, profoundly illegal in Eastern Europe in the Soviet bloc at that time. And he just prayed the simple prayer. God, you made the blind to see, and now I ask and pray that you make the seeing blind. And those guys... Those guards open up his car. They pulled out everything, and it was like, you know, like Star Wars. He said, "Not the droids you're looking for." I mean, I don't even know what to compare it to. It's just supernatural. It's a miracle, and it's in Brother Andrew's story, God Smuggler, one of the most famous books ever written in church histories. Brother Andrew, God Smuggler. And I just, I remember reading that, going like, "Wow!" But here's the thing: it's so scary to get to that place. I mean, how scary is it to be smuggling Bibles into the, you know, Soviet bloc in the '70s, and then to be pulled over and like, "Oh no, this is it." But then to cry out that cry and that prayer where you're boxed in and to see God supernaturally perform a miracle and they're like, you know, da, da, you know, waving you on. It's just like, but you got to take risks to know those moments. Like, that's not soft. That's not a soft sell right there. I mean, that's the real deal in the Jesus style. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the real deal. Even recently I've been reading the book on Ivan Prokhanov, the famous Russian from the late 1800s, early 1900s, who was persecuted under the czars and then under the communists, under Lenin and Trotsky and all those guys. And uh, he's just got story after story of being delivered where these guys are looking for him, the secret police. And then, you know, he, he leaves the place like four minutes before they get there. And man, that's life on the edge. That's life on the edge of the Red Sea. But God can coagulate the sea and make a way for you. And when you're when you're serving the Lord, you're in his will, and we are indestructible in his will. And God's not done until he's done. And when he's done, he's done. And we're in glory. So God makes a way, and he made a way for these guys. And many times it seems practical, but sometimes we just see it's a supernatural way, and it's amazing. Now we pick it up in verse 24. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the armies of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians, and he took off their chariot wheels, so they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, and the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. But not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea, and the waters were as a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. We see this phrase, they believe the Lord, quite a few times when God does these supernatural things for them. But we realize it's more like a believing because they've seen as opposed to believing without seeing. And again, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. So faith says, I believe without saying because God's promised it, like we saw with Abraham and the promise of Isaac. But the world will say, show me and I'll believe. But that's not how faith works. And while there's lots of objective things we can present to people to prove the gospel, a universe of divine origin and purpose, science supports the Bible, everything, you know, it all supports the Bible. The word of God's true. And, And not one jot or tittle will fail of God's word, Jesus said, until all things come to pass. But really, in the end, God holds us accountable to believe. He holds us accountable to believe without seeing because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the events not yet seen. And there in Hebrews 11, where it defines faith, and it talks about faith, the first faith we see is that God is the author of the origin of the universe and entire creation. And then you get Abel and Noah, Enoch and Noah and the rest. And so these people, they, they feared the Lord and they believed the Lord, but they believed because of what they had seen. Like, yeah, okay, we believe it now, but God wants us to believe on the front end. And this is what I tend to say in really difficult circumstances. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we're believing Jesus Christ to raise us from the dead. I mean, if you really think about it, our faith is saying that when I breathe my last, I'm not in that shell of a human body. But to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And we're told that in the the end game, however it plays out, that the dead in Christ rise first and we get a glorified body. So... The grave is not our end. Today's Earth Day. I'm giving away the date of our recording. Today's Earth Day. And uh, it's 50 years of Earth Day. And, you know, just one of those things, just for the record, like, I love our planet. And man's been destroying it for a long time. And I look forward to God redeeming it. But, you know, you see people that worship the planet. And obviously nothing, you know, it doesn't bug me. It used to bug me a lot more in the 80s. You get older, things don't bug you as much. But when people say Mother Earth, it used to make me like, really? Like Mother Earth? How about like Heavenly Father? So today I did an Instagram post where I just said, oh, happy Earth Day, you know, and so I want to praise the one who created it, who holds it together, who redeemed it, who's going to renew it, and raise me from it when I die. I thought, well, think about that one, Earth Day. (laughs) So I put that out there, not to be facetious or provoke people, but just to be a witness. Because I want people, when they're worshiping Mother Earth today, to realize from the dust we came and the dust will return in Sons of Adam. But see, my faith in Jesus Christ and your faith in Jesus Christ says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when I breathe my last, and this, this is all just, you know, it's dust. Given enough time, I'm just a mummy like the pharaohs from a long time ago. I'm just dust. I'm an ugly skeleton, you know, just blowing in the desert somewhere, wherever you might put me in the ground. But actually, I don't intend to be in the ground. I tend to be in the sea, but that's another topic. But at any rate, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. So... I'm believing, and we, as followers of Christ, are believing. He says, I'm the resurrection of life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall not die, but shall live forevermore. Do you believe this? And I say, yes, I do. I believe you're the resurrection of life. And I believe to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. I believe in the dead, and Christ will rise first. And those who have gone before will join him in the air with those that are alive. And thus will be with the Lord forever, First Thessalonians 4. I believe that. So 
When you think what we're believing God to do, to raise us from the dead, then you just look at all these other things around us like, really? If I'm trusting God to raise me from the dead, how can I not trust him to deal with these things in my life about, am I going to have enough money to pay my bills in June? You can trust him. If you're trusting God to raise you from the dead, God is able to do exceedingly above and beyond all that we think or ask for his glory in his church. We're trusting him to raise us from the dead. I believe that. I, I've, I've seen a lot of dead bodies in my time of people that have followed Jesus. Open casket, been by their side when they passed away. To be asked from the body is present with the Lord. And so when we think about our faith, it's not because we see Pharaoh's army buried in the waters of the Red Sea after the fact. Our faith is that we know God is faithful and all of his promises are a yes and amen. I don't believe because it's already happened, although that does strengthen my faith. I believe because the one who promises it is faithful. And he says, put me to the test. And all of his promises are yes and amen. That's the end of Pharaoh's army. There's a song that tells us Pharaoh was drowned with them. They're just wiped out. And God's people made a way. And God had on over them. And just a footnote, parenthetical thought, all those people fighting God on this planet right now, fighting the church, hating Christians, fighting all this just, true, virtuous, and praiseworthy. Don't feel like you have to defend God. Like, God's more than capable of taking their chariot wheels off. You know what I'm saying? Like, we need to pray for our enemies, but we don't need to take off their chariot wheels. God can do that. God, oh, don't you, you're offending me. Listen, man, God's got his universe under control, and this is the age of choice, and he gives people choice. And if they want to blaspheme him and do murderous, evil, diabolical, sinister, demonic things, that's their business. We need to confront that and speak against it, but we don't need to defend God's honor. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to rule and reign with him. Don't let evil people move you. And by the way, just even reading the book on Ivan uh, Prokhanov, I've been thinking like how much persecution and evil has been perpetrated on the Church of Jesus Christ in Russia in the last hundred years plus. And, you know, it's kind of disheartening when you read stuff like, you just go like, gosh, this guy, like, ah, these believers and what they went through. And But then you think like, you know, God has a plan for it. And this guy was praising the Lord. And he talks over and over in his book about how he was optimistic in the Lord from the time he gave his life to the Lord in the Caucasus, there in the region down by the, the Black Sea when he was growing up in the mid, mid to late 1800s. So God knows this is our time. And it's 2020. And this is what the world looks like. And God's, God can get honor over Pharaoh and his army. But what he's really interested in is us praising him before we go through the Red Sea not just saying, I believe, after the Red Sea. We pick it up in chapter 15. So then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he's cast them into the sea. His chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. That's what God does with evil men who are full of themselves and women too. He can just he can sink to the bottom like a stone. Don't let them upset you. I say that to me as much as all of you. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. He's got it, guys. He's got it. He can overthrow those who rise against him. You send forth your wrath that consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the water were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congelled in the heart of the sea. 
The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Did you notice that? It says they sank to the bottom like a stone, and now it says that they sank like lead in the mighty waters. They said, I will, I will, I will, blah, 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 blah. God's just like, like a stone, like lead, boom, you're gone. And God is a perfect, just judge, and he dealt with Egypt, and he'll deal with the nations. I mean, the book of Revelation is the end game, and God sets it all straight with the nations. He'll deal with Russia. He'll deal with America. He'll deal with Europe. He'll even deal with Israel in his own way. He'll, he'll deal with the nations, man. The earth is the Lord's and everything there in it. Psalm 24, it's all his. But this is the time of grace. This is the time of choice. So we don't need to sink to the bottom of the Red Sea like a stone or sink like lead in the mighty waters. We can bow the knee and receive Christ and receive his mercy and his grace. Who would ever want to be in Pharaoh's army with the chariots being ripped off, the wheels off your chariots by the Lord? Who wants to be the... You think of all the blasphemous songs against the Lord that we hear in our generation. Almost, uh, You just hear so much foul stuff against the Lord and against the dignity of humanity and what's true, just, and noble, and praiseworthy. Like, this is, this is the kind of song God's people sing. It's just like, God is mighty, and he deals with evil. Verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, and doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Boy, verse 13 is a wonderful verse, isn't it? You in your mercy have led forth your people that you've redeemed, and you've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Man, that, that's, God's got your back. That's what, that's what they're singing right there. God, you've got our back. Verse 14, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia, then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed, the mighty men of Moab. Trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will be upon them. By your greatness of your arm, they will be still as a stone till your people pass over, Lord, till the people pass over whom you've purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance and the place, O Lord, which you've made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary of the Lord, which your hands have established. And so it was. Moses is singing here. Now, he didn't go into the promised land. He saw the promised land and then... The Michael Eric Angel and Lucifer fought over his body on the Moab side of the river, which the Bible tells us. And then when Jesus is glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses is there in glory with Elijah. So he did make the promised land many centuries later in glory with Jesus, which is, wow, who can even think that? Consider what that really means, the fullness of that. But he talked by faith, he sang by faith of God's people going in the promised land. He saw the future. Now, at the time, he could have thought he was still going there. He certainly led them to it. He brought them to the door of the promised land, but he didn't go in with them. Just almost like Pastor Chuck led the Calvary movement to the brink of this timeline that who knows where this is all going to end. And if this is when the Lord comes back for his church, then guys like Billy Graham, Pastor Chuck, Vernon McGee, these guys that preach the Lord's return imminent, Hal Lindsey, these people, they've brought us to the brink. And um, many of them have stepped into eternity. Hal Lindsey's still alive. You know, Moses brought him to the brink. And, you know, it's interesting because he said they tremble, and that's exactly what happened. If you remember when the two spies go into the promised land 40 years after this that Joshua sends out, that they get to Jericho, and Rahab says, we're all terrified. We're all terrified. We've heard what God's done for you. They literally were terrified. When the Israelites marched around Jericho six days in a row, one time, and then seven times on the seventh day, they were terrified. They were completely terrified. Because they heard what God had done right here and his deliverance against 
Sihon and Og as well on the Moab side of the Dead Sea on that side of Israel to the east. So it was exactly like Moses sang right here. So this is Moses singing a song. And the people are like, yeah, the children are singing along. So Moses and, all right. It's like when Pastor Chuck used to come out big Calvary, you know, and he'd sing a song. Oh, you know, our mighty God art thou. And it's really cool. Everyone sing along. It's kind of like that, I think. That's how I picture it. Verse 18, but the Lord shall reign forever. And again, for the Lord, for the horses of Pharaoh went with the chariots and his horsemen in the sea, and the Lord brought back the water of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went out on the dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, verse 20, the sister of Aaron took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and would dance. And Miriam answered them, saying, Sing to the Lord. He's triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So here we get Miriam steps it up. Moses is like singing like, you know, like singing like a hymn. You know, Miriam comes out and she's got like tambourines. She's like dancing. They're all dancing. All the women come out. They start dancing and they're just praising the Lord. What a beautiful sight. And by the way, Moses is mentioned by name in verse 1. Miriam's mentioned by name in verse 20. And Aaron is mentioned by name in verse 20. So in this incredible chapter of victory where they're singing songs praising the Lord and they're dancing praising the Lord, who's leading the way? Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the three children of Amram and Jochebed. You think, Jochebed, and you think like what their parents went through when they had to put Moses in the Red Sea 80 years before. But look at the faith that's in these kids. And look who's leading this entire nation. Don't underestimate the trials and afflictions in your life and that are allowed that your children are affected by it, like even what we're going through right now, COVID-19. And how for people of faith, God can use that for good in their life to shape and mold their kids, like we talked about earlier on when we were in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, to give our kids fiber and backbone to be people of character in faith and conviction with Jesus. And they're leading the way. Moses, Miriam, Aaron, they're just praising the Lord. I love it. It's a beautiful scene. I mean, this really is a beautiful chapter of God's people praising the Lord for his victories. We pick up in verse 22 and we wrap it up here in chapter 15, the latter part. So Moses brought the Israel from the Red Sea and then they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast in the water, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. The Lord tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. And thus we wrap up chapter 15. Now, right after that deliverance, we're told they're praising the Lord, and the people say, oh, that says that they believe the Lord and his servant Moses. Three days journey, no water. That's, that's a long time without water. Now, I'm sure they had water in various forms upon them, but they're going to need water. There's a large group of people that needs water. You need air to breathe, three minutes, water, three days, and food, three weeks. Those are generally the threes that you go by when you're doing emergency planning. You need air for three minutes. You need, you can't go less, you can't go more than three minutes without air. And you can't go essentially three days without water, and you can't go three weeks essentially without food. Obviously, you can press that out a little farther with fasting, but there's the general guidelines when you're thinking about things and the basic needs that we're drawn to. And so in this case, 
three days without water, and we're told that the water was bitter. So you think you need water, and you come to the water, and you find the water, and the water's bitter. And sometimes that's how it works, right? We think, oh, now we got our deliverance. Now it's here. Look, there's water. There's water. Actually, you can't drink that water. That's bad water. That water's bitter. You can't drink it. And God allows things like that. We're told that he tested them. He tested them. And Mars is a place of bitter water. So how do you make bitter water sweet? You add the tree. What's the tree? The tree's the cross. We're told, cursed everyone who hangs on a tree in the law. And then we're told in Galatians that Christ took that curse for us on that tree. The tree always represents Christ and the cross. And life gives us bitter water. We might have a great deliverance. We're singing and praising the Lord by the Red Sea, and we're all praising the Lord. Moses is leading them in hymns, and Miriam's leading them in dance, and popping and locking and break dance, and all this stuff's going on. And then, hey, all right, the next thing on this road trip, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, we're at Mara. It means bitter. Like they were led right to a place where there's bitter water. And right away they're tested. And so they have to add the tree to make it sweet. This is the Lord teaching us that in life's bitterness, it's made sweet with the, with the tree. You got to add the tree. Life's bitter right now for a lot of people. You, you can't send the kids to school. They're driving you nuts at home. Your husband's driving you nuts. Your wife is driving you nuts. You're all driving each other nuts. You can't go to work. The company's losing business. Big companies are getting the money and little companies are going out of business. How, can you, how come you can go buy a shirt at this department store, but you can't go buy a shirt down here at Huntington Surf and Sport? And who's sufficient to know these things? And who even understands them? How can you, you know, have abortions be essential in some states, but you can't go to church in other states? You know, like, there's some bitterness out there. There's some things that can make you very bitter right now. Think about this. Some people got their severance check from the government. Some people didn't. I purpose right away not to be bitter if I didn't get a check from the government, just so you know that. Uh, if you got a check, good for you. In fact, when the checks went out, there was a number of people I knew that got them, and I was happy for them. And evidently, if you've received tax money from the government previously, then you're easier to get it first. But if you owed in the past, then you might have to wait a little bit longer. But who even cares who even knows? If you're looking for the government to sustain you, that's a sketchy place to be. You want to look to the Lord to sustain you. But there's people, I'm sure, that, you know, like, you got four siblings, and two of them get government checks, and two don't right away. That'll test you right away. I always say we want equality when we feel like it's been unfair to us. But if we can get more, we're never, we don't have a problem with that. We don't have a problem with that. But there are things that test us and will, will tempt us to be bitter. What we're going through right now as a nation, what the church is going through in America in various states where we can't even gather or being arrested or people writing down our license plate number is kind of such. Just the madness and the lunacy of it all and totalitarian, authoritarian people in power just flexing their muscle and revealing what's in their heart against the Lord and his people like Pharaoh and his chariots. It can't be bitter. We've got to add the tree. We've got to bring Jesus in the equation and just say, the Lord's got this and he's got my back and this is going to be good. This is all going to work out. The Lord's got this. Can't be bitter. In the end, what God has for us is like verse 27. He'll test us with the bitter water. We, he'll test us if we'll see if we'll add the tree, add Jesus to the equation and be healed from it. But then in the end, you know, he brings us to, to places that are refreshing. I mean, 12 wells and 70 palms. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament, Jesus had 12 apostles and he sent out 70. You know that, right? He sent out 12, and then he sent out 70. There has to be some kind of connection between the 12 wells and the 70 palms, and Jesus sending out 12 apostles and sending out 70. I don't know what it is, but those numbers are significant with the Lord. But man, just to be at a place of refreshing. So you might feel like you're home right now as Mara. I say add the tree and just pray that God would make it feel like you got <laughs> 12 wells and 70 palms. 
Because the Lord is a refreshing God. He's a blessing God. And even in the midst of the dry and dusty, dusty and dirty land, he will refresh us by his spirit. So we can trust in the Lord to bring us through this. He's going to be good. He's going to be faithful. And we're on a journey. And we need to grow by faith in this journey.